Welcome to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. I am your host, Carolyn Berry. This podcast is for grandparents on the go with their grandchildren and for parents who want to ensure loving relationships across the generations. I welcome your input and your feedback on every episode of the podcast we produce. Please send me an email at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com or connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Grammy Adventure. Please follow or subscribe to my podcast. It's free so you won't miss an episode and ask your family and friends to do the same. You can subscribe to the monthly newsletter by visiting my website, adventureswithgrammy.com, and clicking the newsletter sign-up link. I'd like to welcome Diane Kirby to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. We're going to discuss today what happens when your children and grandchildren have a learning difference or they are experiencing distress in school and having trouble keeping up. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into education and what your job is now. I am Diane Kirby. I have been in education for what seems like forever. This is year 26 for me. I have been in special education for going on 18 years. Before that, I was in the general education classroom. I have been many, many things. I was a director of special education for a division in Virginia. I have owned a private day school and I've been all things in between. Currently, I am a founder of a nonprofit corporation, educational consulting and advocacy. I assist parents and teachers, other school administrators in deciphering special education. If you think that your child needs services, I am currently in the ending phases of my pursuit of higher education, and shortly I will be Dr. Diane Kirby. Cannot wait for that date. Thank you. Let's say I have an elementary age school child, and he is experiencing some difficulty with school. He's telling me he doesn't want to go to school. He doesn't like school. What is something that I can do as a grandparent to help? First, you need to try and do a little bit of investigation to find out exactly what is going on. Is it something going on with the academics, something going on socially, something going on with the dynamics in the classroom? Was the child being picked on by another student? Nine times out of 10, I found that it is going to fall back into an academic or social issue going on in the classroom. You're going to want to get more involved in finding out just what is going on in terms of the academics. Is your child keeping up? Is your child falling a little bit behind? And if your child is falling a little bit behind, what can you do to help with the phonics or with the number uh, number sense and that kind of thing. I would think that looking at your child's work he brings home is mm-hmm. one way, but also having conversations with the teacher is important. Let's say that I think my child has a learning difference and I want him or her to be tested. What is the process for getting this started? Sometimes when parents or grandparents want to get the child tested, it's not that easy 
there has to be a suspicion of a disability in terms of an educational issue. A child could have autism and have a doctor's diagnosis, and that doesn't necessarily transcend into the school system walking right in and you getting consent to test your child. There has to be rationale for that testing to occur. So there has to be an impact on education. So if you're thinking specific learning disability or speech issues, you have to be able to show that there is an impact on the actual learning in the classroom or with the speech, the communication, being able to communicate your wants and needs and in the classroom, communicate with the peers. And if you're thinking autism, you also also have that social piece where you have to show that the social deficit is going to impact your child in the educational setting. Once you can show that, then the school system is more apt to go ahead and do an evaluation. What also tends to happen is the school system will request that some sort of intervention occur first. In several school systems, there is either an RTI model, a response to intervention, or an SST model, student success team, where they will put in interventions, have the teacher follow those interventions with fidelity for six to nine or 12 weeks to see if there is any way with a differentiation, different way of presenting the information that that child could learn. Not every single child will learn the exact same way that everyone else will. So just presenting everything the same exact way isn't going to do it for everyone. So putting those interventions in place, putting those different means of communicating the curriculum into place is going to show if your child can actually access the education and learn or if there truly is a deficit. We have concerns. And the Mm -hmm. school is putting in different interventions. So we are looking now at eight to 12 weeks into Mm -hmm. the school year. Let's say that the interventions worked simultaneously. Mm -hmm. What is, what could be happening at home to help the child? What should be happening is the parent would get a copy, the parent, the grandparent, all of those people who are the support team for the child at home would get a copy of what is happening in the the school building and what little Johnny or Susie is getting at home uh, in the school building could also be mirrored at home, not to inundate the child with education all the time, but if it's shown that he or she is not getting it in one way at school, then it is kind of frivolous to spin the wheels at home and make the child not happy and not learn when they're at home doing it in the way that doesn't work. If chunking works in school and, you know, mom and dad are teaching the child in a way that isn't grouping like things together at home, then we need to make sure that the parents understand what chunking is and how to do that accommodation at home. We have to educate not just the child, but educate the parent and grandparent on the new ways. Uh, Believe me, there's new ways of doing math that I even had to relearn how to do so that it actually does mirror 
what's being taught at school. What is chunking? Chunking would be sort of grouping the things together that would make sense. So instead of giving all of the directions and all of the things that a child is supposed to do uh, for one assignment at one time, you would break it into manageable parts and chunk the assignment into little pieces. If you want the child to do this huge assignment, you would group little pieces together into manageable parts that are similar in the design of the task. In a sense, it is like chunking one little bit together. And then when you have finished that little piece, you move on to the next one so as not to overwhelm and put the similar task pieces together. For instance, if your child has a worksheet of math problems with addition and subtraction, just doing all of Mm -hmm. the addition first and then doing Mm -hmm. the subtraction. Mm -hmm. Yes. My oldest grandchild had a book report. The teacher sent home was for him to read one chapter and then there was a paper, a form that she had sent home asking for the main events so that after each chapter, he filled out this form. And then at the end of the book, he used that form to answer other questions, which then turned into a summary of the book. So it was a Mm -hmm. step-by-step project because just telling him to read the book and write a book report would have been way too overwhelming for him. Absolutely. And, and people need to understand that as teachers, as professionals, we do things for the students to break things up into manageable pieces and parts and give them these accommodations without calling it what it is, the chunking, just to give everyone that ability as to not to overwhelm and to make sure that they can follow the instructions. And when we're seeing that there's an issue, we know exactly when, when they did not do things the way that it should be. And we can trace it back and show them how to get back on track. That reminds me of teaching children algebra and geometry. And I would say, show show your work, show your work and they would resist. And it's like, I can't see where you've made the mistake. If I can't follow the trail of Mm -hmm. your work. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's hope that these interventions that the success team and the RTI has been beneficial and our kiddos are sailing through and they're doing just fine. And everybody's laughing and Mm -hmm. having a good day. But there are going to be a couple of children for whom that does not work. So what's the next step for those children? What should happen is there would be a return date just to make sure that things are going smoothly and all of the data would be collected and turned into the person who is in charge of that file. When the coordinator or whoever would look at it and see that things are not going as planned, At that point, if the interventions are not being successful, the child is showing that there is a a deficit, there is a lack of improvement, then assessments should be done to see if a child does actually have a, a disability. Typically, the assessments that I would ask for 
would be a psychological and an observation, and then an educational assessment, a hearing and a vision, because we always need to make sure that the child can hear you and see you effectively, and that it's just not, they're just not progressing because they can't hear you or see you. And if there's any kind of speech issue, of course, you want to do a speech assessment. If there is any question of autism, I would always ask that there would be a speech assessment, just because of the expressive and receptive component of autism. If that child can understand what you are saying and if they can respond back effectively to what you're, you're saying to them. After that, the team would come together. Now, I will caution you, in Virginia, you have 65 business days to hold the return visit. And that does seem like a long time. The group of professionals does really need that time to make sure that all of the assessments are done in a professional manner. The hearing and the vision should be done first uh, before any of the other ones, because if the hearing screening is not passed and the vision screening is not passed, then everything should stop and the child be sent to a doctor. And if you do have time, your timeline can still continue. And if the hearing and vision is ruled out, then you can still go ahead with your psychological and your educational and still meet within your 65 business days. Would you explain what a psychological is? A psychological evaluation could be comprised of a couple components. A cognitive component will give you a full scale IQ. And that's what everybody, that's the magic number that everybody is looking for. But that one magic number does not really tell you a whole heck of a lot. It's the other numbers that are, that make up the full scale, what you're, is what you're looking for, is what you really should look at. If you're doing a, a WIS, a Westler intelligence uh, assessment, then you're looking at a verbal comprehension and also a nonverbal component. So what your child can express verbally, words, and what your child does not need words to express, like this uh, spatial ability, the ability to put patterns together, that kind of thing. So there's a lot that goes into a psychological evaluation, and that's just the cognitive component. Another aspect of the psychological evaluation would be grading scales that a parent would fill out in conjunction with grading scales that the educator someone at the school who knows your child for at least six to eight weeks would fill this out. An example of this would be like a Connors assessment, and that tells you behavioral component. It really does a good job of assessing ADHD, and then you take the component, the rating scale from the parent, and you take the rating scale from the school, and if they match in the different subtests, then it will let you know the likelihood of showing the characteristics of ADHD and the likelihood of having executive functioning issues where a child has issues with critical thinking and organizational skills and impulsivity. And so the psychological gives you all of that really good information about what your 
um, what your potential ability is. And then it has a lot of numbers attached to it. So when you're looking at the numbers, a standard score that is in the average range would be between a 90 and 110 with 100 being average. And it's on that bell curve, if you've seen that. And every 10 going away from that 90 to 110, those are standard deviations. And so that's where you hear the one or two standard deviations away from the mean, which is that 90 to 110. That 90 to 110 being average, when you're looking at IQ and your child's IQ would be between 80 and 89, that is in the below average range. And when it goes a little bit further downwards from the 70 to 79, that is in the, the lower range. So those are just those markers that you need to be aware of. And a school psychologist or a licensed psychologist would be able to do the assessments for you and really go over those numbers and tell you what those mean in accordance with your particular child and give you a really good individualized assessment and report for your child. Then you have your educational assessment, which is your child's achievement. And that is, if you're using a Woodcock-Johnson test of achievement, then that is a series of tests that measure a child's reading and math and writing ability. And you take this information, it's pretty much the same way with 90 to 110 being your average range is what you want to see. And with every marker in tens from 80 to 89 and 70 to 79 shows you which grouping your child is in as to the level of the deficit for that particular subtest. And that's how you find if your child has a specific learning disability. In the show notes, I will have links to resources that grandparents can parents can look at to get more information. Let's say Mm -hmm. we've proceeded and we've identified significant deficits and the IEP team has decided that this child needs an IEP. Explain what an IEP is and then what happens after that. Your child has just been found eligible. They have a disability under um, IDEA and IDEA is federal law uh, that goes through all of the classifications of uh, the disabilities. Say your child is found eligible with a specific learning disability or autism or uh, speech language impairment. So an IEP is an individual educational plan, and it will be written based upon all of the reports that you have just been presented in the eligibility meeting. And the team has 30 days from the date of the eligibility meeting to put all of that information into the IEP and present it to you. You will have a lot of information all put together. First part will be your considerations. Is your child deaf or hearing impaired? Is your child blind or vision impaired? That kind of thing. And then the next page 
is the present level information. And that is everything that has just been gone over in the eligibility meeting. This is where your concerns are going to be heard. There is a section in there as the parent and you can put all of your concerns in this document. And the, the person in charge, the case manager, has to record your concerns. And then the goals and the services and the accommodations for this child for the year will be put into this document. And you have to be very careful in this section. So many people want to put a ton of accommodations into this section. If children are ADHD and um, have a classification of other health impairment, everybody needs a small group testing or everybody needs frequent breaks or all of that. Well, not everybody needs those accommodations. We have to show the need for those accommodations. We also need to be very, very careful that the services are keeping that child as much as possible in the general education setting. The general education teacher is the teacher who needs to be delivering the curriculum and the special education teacher is the teacher who needs to be delivering the specialized instruction. If your child is ADHD and needs behavior modification to learn how to sit still in the classroom, you want the general education teacher to deliver the math and the reading and the writing and the science and social studies to your child and you want the special education teacher to work on those executive functioning issues with your child or the social skills with your child, study skills kind of things. You do not want, if at all possible, to remove your child from the rest of the non-disabled peers. You want to keep your child in the setting. And then the goals need to be attainable within the year. Lofty, lofty goals need to be kind of toned down. It needs to be something that's going to be able to be uh, measured and also mastered within that year. That's where the concept of SMART goals come in. Absolutely. Specific learning disability needs to be a standards-based goal where we have information, especially based on the achievement testing that was just done, the deficits that that child has. And then we can take the information that that teacher, the current classroom performance data will have, and we can integrate all of that with the psychological information that was just done and write a really, really great measurable goal that the child will be able to to do within the year. So we want to make sure that the goal is attainable. So many times I'm I'm reading goals and I also find that there is no way that it is measurable. Johnny will increase his knowledge of blah 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 and increase it from what? I need to see data. I need to see, sometimes I need to see a baseline. I need to see Johnny was at a, a reading level of this 
And the goal is by January 2022, Johnny will be reading on a level L or, or just whatever. So we need to see exactly what we're looking for. And it is important to know that objectives are really not necessary on a goal unless you are uh, writing a goal for a student who is doing an adapted curriculum. We should be able to just write a goal, a very clear standards-based SMART goal for a child on the standard curriculum and without having benchmarks or objectives. This actually applies for children all through their school career from K to 12, what you're talking about. Absolutely. Actually, before I have worked with children who are pre-K, as young as three years old, who are in a pre-K setting or a natural environment setting that are going into a school system and working on goals. A lot of them have autism or they are students uh, with a speech language impairment that have goals that they are working towards. And then every year you have an IEP meeting uh, and IEP will run for 360 four days, and then you will go through every nine weeks or as often as children get report cards in your division, you will have a progress report. So you will find out how your child is doing on your IEPs. And if I will caution you, if a goal is constantly not being improved upon, call an IEP meeting. An IEP is a very fluid document. That means that at any time you want to have an IEP meeting, you can call an IEP meeting. Let's discuss the progress. If this isn't a great goal, let's, let's write another one. It doesn't have to be at the, the year's time for you to discuss that IEP, discuss the progress. What I was referring to earlier was that as a high school teacher, I often identified children who might need extra intervention. And mm-hmm. while it is unusual, It is not impossible for a high school student to have gone through earlier grades and the disability not be recognized until that child reaches high school. Absolutely. Absolutely. For several years, I was a high school administrative special education person, and I think I was busier at the middle school, high school ages than I ever have been at the elementary stage. Elementary stage, kids can kind of hide the specific learning disability. The thing that really sticks out at the elementary age levels would be autism ID, the speech. But when you're getting into the middle school years, the high school years, the specific learning disability, the ADHD, where everyone else is kind of Uh, toning down the impulsivity, middle school, it's revving up. You're not able to calm down. Classes are changing. There's so much more stimulus. There's so many markers for you at the middle school, high school level in terms of the other health impairment classification and the specific learning disability, the SLD classification. So it's not just an elementary school thing eligibilities. It's the entire school career 
And while you cannot have an IEP when you are in college, if you are identified as a student with a disability later in your high school years, you can let your colleges know that you have a disability and 504s for a person who has had an IEP are actually a thing. If you have been classified as having a disability, you can have a section 504 and that can follow you into college. You can let your grandchildren know that they can have accommodations for college and then into their career. I think the listeners need to know that a 504 section is referring to the Americans with Disabilities Act section 504 that Mm -hmm. talks about disabilities. Mm -hmm. So that Mm -hmm. is not only applicable in the workforce, but also in education K through college. Mm -hmm. I'd like for you to address something known as 2E or twice exceptional. I ran into this on on a couple of my students, whereas they were gifted and in the gifted program, they also had a learning disability. Mm -hmm. So would you tell us about that, please? Mm -hmm. I uh, was in the elementary school for years and the the division that I was in had uh, gifted programs and we had lots of children who either had autism, which is a disability under IDEA, or a specific learning disability for another area. The children can have, can be gifted, uh, can be great, fantastic thinkers and thinking out of the box, but also having a struggle with letter word ID and not being able to decode. But if the words can be read to them, they still can do their work at quite a miraculous rate and do wonderful things or be fantastic writers and with such imagination, but not be able to actually spell, but their imagination and their stories be incredible or be completely gifted in art or, or other areas, but not be able to function in math without the use of a calculator. Number and number since hasn't been developed. So with special education, we can give them the services that they need and the accommodations that they need in order to access the curriculum in the way that we are not limiting them in any way. We are giving them what they need. And that is what a lot of people are saying about equity. Things should not be equal. They should be equitable. I have in mind a particular student I worked with in high school who scored the highest score on the entrance exam to the gifted program in the history of the school district. But he also had trouble writing And this child was Mm -hmm. incredibly gifted in music and was so intelligent that he had breezed through elementary and middle school without anybody noticing that there was a deficit. And it did not come Mm -hmm. to light until he was in the gifted program and had difficulty keeping up. And the gifted program wanted to dismiss him. I advocated for this child and said, no, he needs special accommodations. We need to test this child and find out what's going on. So you can have a child who is incredibly, incredibly intelligent 
and talented and still have this issue that prevents Mm -hmm. him or her from doing a particular educational task. It reminds me of that poem about if you ask a fish to climb a tree, he's going to fail. (laughs) (laughs) And absolutely. We just really have to look at these kids strengths and build on those strengths and then remediate or give them the tools to handle the deficits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's really not a lot that the children can't do if we give them the chance because most children want to learn. Most children want to do what we want them to do. A lot of the times I found, even with your ED kids or children that are ADHD or you know with impulsivity, they really do want to please the adult. It's just they've met up with such barriers sometimes that sometimes they just don't want to try any longer. And our job as the adult is to make it so learning is just not so much of a struggle for them. We're the ones who have gone to school to to figure it all out. And we've gone through school ourselves and we've done all of this. We just need to put everything that we've learned together and make it not as much of a struggle and that we're giving them what they need to be successful. I think one of the most important takeaways from our discussion is the importance of home school communication. And I would, Mm -hmm. I would caution parents to trust teachers. And I know there are some teachers that don't want to deal with any child who's not a straight A student, but most of them Mm -hmm. are not like that. And I think if parents have a positive attitude about the school and really communicate concerns, the teacher and the parent both have the same goal. And that is to help children learn. If it turns out that this child really is not the kind of student that the teacher embraces and has a real problem with, then ask for a different teacher. But for the most part, schools and home work together in a positive way, and the child is going to thrive. Mm -hmm. I know as a teacher, as a gen ed teacher, and a special ed teacher, I always try to maintain good communication with, with my students' families. I found that I would learn something about my student that I didn't otherwise know that would help me help him or help her. And that was really important. And, and one thing that the virtual has done for, for us at, in the educational field is actually seeing into the homes of the children and seeing what these kids are, are dealing with at home kind of a bird's eye view into living arrangements, into what parents are doing. So many parents are sitting there right next to their children the entire time that they were out for COVID. Parents were sitting there right there at the kitchen table doing everything with their child. And it was amazing to see. And that really did help with communication. How do we find you on the internet? My email is iepfixer at gmail.com. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. 
You will find the links to our guests and the topics we discussed in this episode's show notes. If you would like to be a guest or if you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please connect with me at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com.